We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tonight, 2 Corinthians 4. It's interesting how we think we know the Bible when, for most Christians, I think we know this tiny little portion that we're comfortable with, and the rest of it is mysterious to us. There are teachings of Jesus that you'll rarely hear spoken from the pulpit of a church, or be the subject of a Sunday school lesson or a Bible study. And because most Christians don't read the Bible cover to cover, they don't ever get to these. Um, I'll just give you some examples. Jesus, these are just sayings of Jesus. I'm not even touching the Old Testament when he said, consider the cost. Before you want to be my disciple, count the cost. Uh, His question to James and John when they wanted to be sit on his right or his left in his coming kingdom. And he said, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? In other words, are you able to die for the Lord like I'm about to? Uh, When Jesus said, if the world hated me, it will hate you. I don't know anybody who has that in calligraphy on their wall or on a bumper sticker on the back of their car. Or, Or this one in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. We like the second part of that, but take Uh, take care, I have overcome the world. But that's a promise from Jesus that there will be trouble in this world. And none of those that I just mentioned refer to ordinary sufferings. This is specifically talking about some form of persecution for our faith. Note also that Jesus never says, if you're a really serious Christian, you'll have to deal with this. But if you want to take the the discount route, right? Or or if you want the, the easy path, there's, there's an option for you. He doesn't say that. There's only one kind of Christian. Uh, if you're not a serious disciple, you're not really following Jesus. And if we're serious disciples, we can't expect that there's going to be some hardship as a result. Uh, you know, as, as pastors, we want to talk about the good part. We want to sell people on salvation. Jesus never really did that, did he? He told them the truth. He told them the good and the bad. In this section of 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the hardships of being an apostle, a follower of Jesus, someone who's sent to do his work, but he also explains what makes those hardships bearable. So we'll kind of go at it in two halves like that. So the first half, we're going to talk about some of the hardships. In verse 7 of chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, he says, But we have this treasure, that is the image of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh." So in, there, in, in that section, you see six paradoxes, six things that don't seem like they should be possible but are, that show the cost of serving Christ. And we're going to walk through those, and then we'll get to the benefits and, and the things that make it worth it after that. So the first one is the glory of God in jars of clay. You know, we have this glory, this treasure in jars of clay, which means that if you're... Ego demands compliments and attention and applause. You're in the wrong line of work, you might say. Um, We shouldn't seek compliments. We should seek His glory. The moment our Christian life turns into a a desire to be complimented by others, to be praised by others, 
we're headed off the wrong, we're headed down the wrong track. Now, it's true, you might, if you have really good friends, if you're part of a good, healthy church like this one, you'll, you'll get encouragement. You'll get people come along and say, thank you for what you do. Uh, you'll get people who recognize your efforts. But if that's what you crave, let me just testify, that's, that's one of my downfalls as a human being is I, I crave that attention and applause. And so if that, if that becomes your dominant motivation, then there's no amount of praise from your church family that's going to do. You're constantly going to be, be saying in your head, well, okay, all these people said I did a good job, but she sat there and, and stared at me like I was an idiot the whole time. So what's wrong with her? What did I do wrong? Or somebody, uh, he, he said something to me that made me think he's mad at me. What did I do? And you'll just, you'll just, you'll run that over in your mind all night. won't be able to sleep. It'll drive you crazy. Understand this. Our job is not to be seen as successful. Our job is to manifest the glory of God, to be the fragrance of the knowledge of the glory of Christ wherever we go. If you go over to somebody's house and they feed you a meal and it's an exceptionally good meal, you don't start saying, wow, you must have a fantastic oven. Your pots and pans, I got to get a look at those pots and pans. Those must be the best pots and pans ever. Your spatula, I, where'd you get that spatula? It's got to be the best I've ever had. No, you say, you're a great cook. Good job. I've never had food this good. We are the vessels. We're not the show. Christ is the show in us. And we need to get that through our minds. And I, again, just as a word of testimony, when I preach, and y'all hopefully recognize this, every time I get into the pulpit, I'm excited to be there. That's one of the high points of my week. I can't wait to share what I've been working on all week. But I also have to be in prayer that morning and say, okay, God, am I excited because I love you and I love your word and I love your people? Or, is that, or am I excited because I want them to be impressed by all this work I put into this? And I want them to say, oh, what a good preacher you are. I really have to ask him to examine my motives because that's I know my heart. I know where I'm prone to stumble. A lot of you have a similar issue. You need that affirmation. And so recognize it. That's one of the costs of serving. If you want recognition, if you want affirmation, Serve something else. You know, chase after human celebrity and success, but don't do it through Jesus Christ. Second thing, we're hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. Or, or as my Bible says it, uh, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. It's like we're gladiators in a, an arena facing an opponent who's bigger and stronger and faster than we are, and yet somehow the enemy can never deliver the killing blow. We take a beating. That's part of the Christian life. We take a beating, and yet through Christ, we are never destroyed. We are never crushed. And that's got to be frustrating for the devil. But I'm not too sympathetic with him. I'm thankful that Christ is in us and enables us to weather all those storms. He says, we're perplexed, this is number three, but not in despair. Now, in the Greek, that's a play on words because he's using two words that sound very similar. Um, so one, one version of the Bible tries to capture that, and it translates it this way. We're at a loss, but we're never totally at a loss. We, we throw up our hands. We say, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know what's going on. But deep down inside, you know what you need to know. One of the... One of the Freeing things as a Christian is when you reach that point where you're able to say, 
without any guile, without any uh, sense of shame. You know, I just don't know. Early in the Christian life, we think it's all about us knowing everything. And we want to impress people by being able to come up with all the answers. And somebody, some non-Christian or a younger Christian than us comes up and gives us one of those really difficult questions. And we don't know the answer, but gosh, we think we need to know the answer. So we make something up. That's the worst thing you can do. Because they'll sniff you out in a heartbeat. When you reach that point in your life where you say, you know, this has really got me perplexed, but I'm not in despair because I know the one who knows the answer. And when he's, when he's ready to give that answer to me, I'll have it. Just as long as you are do, making every effort to grow in Christ, you know what you need to know. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. And that includes a lot of things. That includes, why did this happen? I don't know. That includes, when is Christ returning? I don't know. That includes, uh, what is His plan for my life beyond this point? I, I've learned, I learned a long time ago that the, uh, the, the art of learning the will of God is usually about figuring out what to do next. It's not about this big grand scheme and, you know, in, in 15 years I'm going to be you know, this, I'm going to be living here and doing that. That's not the way God has revealed His will to me. I don't know about you. Instead, it's more like, oh, go talk to that person over there. Or here's an opportunity you need to take advantage of. Or here's, here's somebody you need to help or something you need to repent of. That's how I discover the will of God, step by step by step. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Number four, we're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're persecuted but not forsaken. So it's told us over and over again in the New Testament that persecution is coming. And as Americans, we, we might look around and go, well, I don't, don't really see it happening to me. And that's true. Out of all the people in the history of the world, we have more religious freedom than anybody. And we should be thankful for it. But we're the exception. Just note that throughout history, and even today in many parts of the world, being a Christian is costly. And it's growing more costly for us. But so far, it's more on the level of inconvenience for most of us than it is actual persecution. We just need to understand when that happens, God has not abandoned us. When that happens, that doesn't mean that the Lord has failed. In fact, in fact, if God is for us, who can be against us? I, I would rather, I, I'm not saying I, I don't treasure the freedoms we have, because I do. But I would rather lose those freedoms if it meant actual revival in God's church than keep those freedoms and remain a spiritually mediocre, cold, lifeless body of believers as I believe we currently are in this country. Again, I'm not saying throw out religious freedom at all. That, that's one of the main ways I vote. But what's much more crucial is the Holy Spirit of God at work in us and us submitting to the work of God, persecuted but not abandoned. Number five, we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. This is similar to when he says we're hard-pressed hard but not crushed. We get knocked down, but we're never knocked out. We're never out of the game. We can expect there will be times when we will be discouraged. Uh, one of the lies that the modern uh, Christian movement preaches is that if you've got enough faith, you'll always have victory. 
And that's just not the way. I, mean, I don't see that in the scriptures. I, I don't see that happening to Paul. I don't see that happening to any of the apostles. I certainly don't see it happening to Jesus. You've got to be very selective to try to find that kind of, uh, that kind of teaching in Scripture. You've got to only look at a handful of stories and then ignore even parts of those. The truth is, following God brings its own challenges. Doing His will brings its own difficulties. But we will never be destroyed because the Holy Spirit of God is in us. So that's one of the risks of serving God. And then finally, he says, bearing the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus. We are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's a confusing sentence. But what I think he's saying is, we're, we're simultaneously living in the Garden of Gethsemane and, on Easter, and at the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. There's a part of us that knows uh, our bodies are being given over to death. In other words, as Paul says, Paul, Paul, Paul is saying of himself, I know any day I could be martyred for the faith. You know, it, that, that incident in Ephesus when they had the big riot in the arena. I'm sure when that day was over, Paul thought to himself, boy, I sure did think I was going to die today. Or when they took him out and stoned him and left him for dead. And he, when he came to, I bet he thought, wow, Lord, I can't believe you left me here. That's just, that's just part of following Jesus for Paul. And yet, he always lived at the empty tomb, knowing that my death is, whenever it happens, my death is not going to be final. Because my Lord will have the last word. My Lord will have the last word. I don't usually recommend movies, but uh, there is a movie that was made four or five years ago called Paul, Apostle of Christ, that I highly recommend. A lot of faith-based movies are not well done. This one is. Uh, and it's, it's, it's set in a Roman prison where Paul is, is stationed and Luke is visiting him and is interviewing him, basically, so he can write the book of Acts. And it deals with Paul's life and thoughts as he faced the end of his days. And it's really inspiring. It's really well done. But it reminds me of this, how, how a man could have a sense, like he writes in 2 Timothy, I know I know I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've, I've kept my faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. I wish I could stay here, but I know I can't. There's joy and there's sorrow, and we bear that as Christians. So those are the things he lists as the, uh, the dilemmas, the, the cost of serving Christ. Now, then he says in verse 12, So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, six dilemmas, six uh, paradoxes in the first half. Here's six instructions to overcome. And the first one is, remember 
that your sufferings for Christ make your ministry more effective. When he says death is at work in us, but life in you, when he says in verse 15, it is all for your sake, we're suffering for your sake, so that as our grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. He's talking about the fact that one of the things that gets him through these difficult times is knowing God is able to use my suffering to make my ministry more and more powerful. When I was 30 years old, I remember how old I was because I, I'd, become a, I'd become pastor of a church at 30. I was new at this church. And one of the first messages I preached that first year was a sermon about suffering. I don't remember why that was my topic, but it was. And I thought I did a pretty good job. I felt good about that sermon. And then uh, a week or so later, a member of the church came by and said, uh, you know, I was talking to so-and-so and gave the person's name and said, and, and she said, what does he know about suffering? He's only 30 years old. And I thought, well, you know, she's got a point. I don't really, I can't really speak, faith, you know, firsthand on this. At that age, I still had all my grandparents alive. I, I, I hadn't suffered much at all. Part of the problem was I had followed a man in the pulpit who'd been there 18 years and had retired. And during the time he had been pastor, his own wife had died very suddenly. And he'd taken a couple of weeks. They, they, told him, they told him, Pastor, take as long as you need. Well, he came back after a couple of weeks. He couldn't stay away. And his first sermon back in the, pul in the pulpit was titled, Things I Learned in the Dark. It was just basically, here's what God's been teaching me in my time of grief. And for years, after, even after I came, people would come into the office and say, can we have that can we have a copy of that sermon that, that Brother Meredith preached after his wife died? And we'd have to go dig it up and make a copy. And There is a credibility that comes with suffering. You know, the truth is, I may have been right in everything I said when I preached that message. I may have been completely biblical. That may have been a great, as great a sermon as I thought it was. But I wasn't heard by certain people because they didn't see me as credible. They saw him as credible because they knew what he'd been through. Understand, if you go to somebody who's going through a divorce and you try to counsel them, and you've never been through one, they may not hear you as much as they would somebody who has been through a divorce or someone who has experienced, uh, a, been a victim of violent crime or lost a child. None of those things are good. I wouldn't wish them on anybody. But if you go through one of those things, Understand, God can use that to give you a more powerful ministry. Second thing, we can testify of God's goodness while those hard times are going on. So verse 13 is an unusual verse. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. That's confusing. It helps to know that Paul is quoting from a psalm. He's quoting Psalm 116 verse 10. And that whole psalm, see, Paul expects us to know the psalms. Sort of like if I today said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, y'all would all in your mind say that saved a wretch like me. You would complete the song in your head. Well, the Jews and, and early Christians could do that with the psalms. So all, had, all, all Paul had to do was say a, a line out of the, that psalm, and he just took it for granted that the Corinthians and, and other Christians would go, oh, okay, they'd be reminded of that. Well, that psalm... Psalm 116 is all about how God provides for us when life is tough. How, you know, the world's got me down, but God is on my side, so I know I can make it through. So when Paul quotes that, he's saying, I also believe 
And so that's what I'm talking about. I, I am here to tell you in the midst of my difficulties, God is still good. God is still good. I, I read about a guy who uh, would throw counted all joy parties. In other words, he'd throw a party whenever he was going through really difficult times. He'd just invite a bunch of friends over and they'd have dinner and they'd play games and they'd laugh. And what's the occasion? Well, you know, I got a bad report from the doctor. Or, you know, my brother is uh, on death's door or whatever. That was just the way he responded. He took it literally in James when it says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Well, what's the best way to be joyful? Get together with my friends. I don't, I'm not saying that's a, a precise uh, obedience to the Word of God, but I, I think it's a good idea. If, if you can find a way to testify of God's goodness in the difficult times, then there's power in that. The third thing he mentions is to live in the daily anticipation of the resurrection. And when I mean the resurrection, I mean ours, our resurrection. In verse 14, he says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. We have, as I said on, on Easter Sunday, we have our own Easter Sunday coming up, every single one of us. And so that means that facing death should be like facing corrective surgery. Nobody looks forward to going under the knife. You know, they, you know what they say, the only minor surgery is the one that happens to somebody else. And yet there are some surgeries that uh, you sort of look forward to because you think, okay, I, I'm not looking forward to the process, but I'm looking forward to the result. I'm tired of this pain. I'm tired of this problem. And I'm hoping this will take care of it. Um, and that's the way at a certain point we should look at death. And we should say, I'm not looking forward to leaving behind my family. I'm not look for, looking forward to whatever happens in those days, weeks, or months before I expire, but I'm looking forward to being once and for all well. Death is the ultimate corrective surgery. There is pain, there is anxiety, but think of the result for the believer in God. And then fourth, he says, think about what is happening to your soul. In the last few years, verse 16 of, of 2 Corinthians 4 has become more and more and more meaningful to me. And you might say, well, that's because you're getting older. And that's part of it. But it's also because I'm seeing my parents get older. And I'm seeing a lot of friends get older. Friends who are of the next generation above me. And I'm watching them get older and less able to do certain things that they used to be able to do. And so when it says your outer self is wasting away, but your inner self is being renewed day by day, that brings me incredible encouragement. Because there comes that point where your physical body, you say, well, you know, I can do all the walking I, I, I want to, but it's not going to make me 20 years younger. It's just not going to work. There's just a, a law of diminishing returns eventually. And if this life were all there was, that would be so depressing. I don't know how we would be able to stand it. But the fact is that inwardly we never have to stop getting better and stronger and more joyful, more like Jesus. As Paul says in, in another area, you know, in, in another part of his writings, I believe in 2 Timothy, out, that physical training is of some value, but training for godliness is profitable for all things. So keep that in mind. It's a great encouragement. And then number five, remember the rewards that are coming. Verse 17, this light momentary affliction 
I wouldn't have the guts to tell anybody their affliction is light or momentary. But somebody like Paul, who's been nearly stoned to death and and shipwrecked three times and imprisoned and nearly starved and constantly in danger, he's got the credibility to say that, right? He says our light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond, beyond all comparison. And I think what that means is the worst suffering we ever go through in this world, when we get there, the glory we'll experience will be so great, we'll be able to look back and go, well, you know, honestly, it wasn't that bad. I mean, when I compare, see what it produced? Another way to look at it, and this is a very different way, is when uh, an athlete is standing on the gold medal stand and they're playing the national anthem, I guarantee you there's not a single one of those athletes who, th- who thinks to himself, I wish I would have had more hot fudge Sundays. I wish I would have slept late more often. I wish I wouldn't have done all that. No, they're thinking, thank God for all that pain I went through. This is what it produced. And, and when we stand in glory, I believe that's going to be an attitude we'll have. We won't look back. I don't, you know, I think a lot of us have this idea, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, why did you put me through this? I don't think that's going to be our attitude when we first get there. <laughs> first of all, I think we're going to be so blown away by His glory, we won't be able to speak. But, but we won't think about anything negative. We'll, we'll think about, oh my goodness, this is what that produced? Well then, okay, you owe me no explanation, Father. And then number six, the unseen world should be the focus of our lives. As we focus on the things that are, not the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are temporary, they're transient, they're passing away. Things that are unseen are eternal. What is he talking about? He's talking about seeing people through the eyes of God. You know, bank accounts are important but bank accounts don't last forever. Companies we build and invest in, they're great because they employ others because they make the, make the economy work, but they don't last forever. Buildings, institutions, all these things have their place, but only people last forever. Those are the things that are eternal, the, the eternal soul that you can't see. So see people as God sees them, um, pay attention to spiritual warfare. Those are the unseen things. And by the way, when I say engage in spiritual warfare, I mean pray. I think there's, there's, a lot, there's a certain segment of the Christian faith, most of them very good and sincere and godly people, but they've made spiritual warfare into something it's never meant to be. Like we're supposed to walk around like amateur exorcists. And we're never called to do that in the Scriptures. Instead, we're just told, pray. Pray without ceasing. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Just don't go along with him and he'll give up. Um, So be aware that that realm exists and and resist it by the power of God, praying constantly. And then uh, to make the unseen world the focus of your life, I think you've heard me say this, I hope, but I want to say it again and again. Daydream about heaven as often as possible. You know, just think about what it's going to be like. Rehearse the promises in Scripture referring to uh, the world to come and just picture yourself there. And don't just throw up your hands and say, well, I can't. It's, it's beyond my comprehension. Sure, lots of it is, but the Bible tells us enough about it to make us excited. So think about that. Let me just close with this. Imagine 
that all you have in the world to live in is somebody, you bought somebody's little hunting shack, you know, just a little one bedroom kitchenette, no AC, no, no heat. Just, you're just out there in the middle of somebody's pasture. That's the best you can afford. Now, as you make a little money, are you going to improve that place? Are you going to put some work into it? Of course you are. You're going to expand. You're going to, you're going to, uh, you're going to put in some uh, utilities and some, uh, some appliances, and you're going to make your life more comfortable. Let me throw another wrinkle in it, though. What if a master carpenter, the best contractor you know, comes to you and says, hey, listen, I'm going to build you a house, a, a real house, free of charge. All you have to do is work alongside me. As long as you show up every day, we'll build that house together. Okay, if that's the case, how much work are you going to put into the cabin and how much work are you going to put into the house? In my opinion, you'll suffer with a few inconveniences in that cabin as long as you know it's only for a little while because you're going to put all your work into the place you're going to live full time. And that's the picture of us. The cabin is our earthly bodies, our earthly lives. Don't, don't over-invest in what's going away. Invest in what never goes away. That's, that's a way that it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. It doesn't go with anything we've been taught, but that's the way to live, to lay up for yourselves treasures that don't, that don't go away, that, you know, where moth does not uh, uh, eat and rust does not corrode and thieves don't break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So let me lead us in prayer. Lord God, we come before you tonight and we're grateful for these warnings and promises. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would encourage us. Get us ready, Lord, for the challenges we will face and encourage us in the challenges we are facing. Help us, Lord, to testify of your goodness and to hope in you. And Lord, most of all, to fix our eyes on the things that aren't seen, that are more real and lasting than the things that are. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray all these things. Amen.